his tenant was that the people have a right to know. This is Rumble Strip, Vermont. Today, a tribute to Vermont journalist Kendall Wilde. My relationship with Kendall was tense. Um, he was the, I have a little bit of a problem with authority, and he was the authority, and so I was um, shy with him, and yet I sought his approval and occasionally got it, and occasionally got reamed out by him. I was scared shitless of Kendall. <laughs> he, he, he did throw paste pots at people. Yeah, his favorite expression around the newsroom was, they can't do that. <laughs> Kendall would, uh, you know, encourage you to uh, be confrontational, to go out, get the story, and he, he put bylines on every story because he couldn't pay you very much. We were his children, his offspring, his successors. He sent us out across the land and from... Vermont to California, there are people who worked for Kendall Wild who became major influences in journalism in the places where they landed. I had not heard of Kendall's passing. I don't often weep, but I did. He gave me the only break I ever needed. Kendall Wilde worked at the Rutland Herald for 40 years, and through the 60s and 70s, he was its managing editor. That's back when phones were still attached to the wall and when people read newspapers. There were major cultural and political changes in Vermont during Kendall's tenure as managing editor, and many believe that Kendall played a major role in shaping that new political landscape. There's also a whole generation of journalists who came up through the ranks under Kendall, and became his comrades in arms. I invited a few of them to gather in Bill Porter's office on State Street and tell a few stories about Kendall and about a uniquely exciting time in Vermont journalism. In this segment, you'll hear from Bill Porter, Howard Coffin, Glenn Gershenik, Irene Race, Alan Gilbert, Nick Marrow, Tom Slayton, and Bill Porter's wife, Ruth Porter. Welcome. I remember the newsroom in those days, and it was um, a hub of activity. There were probably 15 people there, and Kendall would be sitting, you know, he came in with either a bow tie or a necktie on, and he would be sitting there with John Pixley Clement, and he had a pair of scissors that were about two feet long, clipping copy, and Ken, and you pasted copy together with paste and, and uh, cheap copy paper. And Kendall would be over there going through stories or reading the AP wire. And by, you know, by 10 o'clock uh, at night, um, which was our uh, deadline, the tie would be unloosened and he'd be smoking a cigar and yelling into the phone. And uh, Kendall was the driving force of the Rutland Herald. People were always hollering at each other. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the working night, uh, the deadline was 10, o- 10 o'clock, one of our shifts ended, right? We, uh, we were all expected uh, to uh, wait around for the paper to, to come off the presses. And there was a parking lot across from the Herald where we'd gather to drink beer until Charlie Thompson pushed the button and the big old presses began to roll. It was so damned exciting. And we'd take those first papers off the press. Of course, if you're a rookie reporter, you're looking for your byline down there. But 
Kendall was always there with us. And he, he taught through that experience and many others, but particularly that one, that the paper was the most important thing. It, that's your life. And the next, uh, next tomorrow, there'll be there'll be another one. You were asking us before, did he report on the '60s and '70s, the counterculture? In some ways, Kendall was the counterculture. Mm-hmm. His whole his whole thing was questioning authority, yep. to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, and that's really all about questioning authority. I actually think some of it came from his time in post World War II Germany. I mean, he really saw the physical effects of what happens to a country where people don't question authority. I mean, he saw a country that was totally destroyed, both in terms of buildings and property, but also in terms of what the people has suffered. I think he understood the rivers of politics and religion and war and peace that go into making societies that are either just or not just. And he felt that justice is achieved by questioning authority and never letting people get away with something that you think is wrong. Well, it was beer. Sometimes people would bring whiskey. Kendall, I think Kendall brought a lot of whiskey. Um, Oh, but I have to tell you about Kendall. One time at a party, Kendall said, I guess he must have been feeling kind of blue. He said, "I'm I'm just a Bennett Hatch. That's all I am. And nobody knew who Bennett Hatch was, but he's the... old family retainer who does the service for the bad guy in The Black Arrow, written by Robert Louis Stevenson. (laughs) But no one knew who Bennett Hatch was. (laughs) What he meant was that he was just in the service of um, the publisher. But he wasn't. He, He bent the publisher to his will. I mean, he had this huge news hole in that paper, and he had all these reporters. I mean, it's insane how many reporters he had. So he really wasn't a Bennett Hatch at all. <laughs> Kendall went in the military, and, and I don't know if he was—I guess he was drafted—right uh, out of high school, 18 years old, and was sent to Germany, and was there for most of his most of his career, and then came back and went to school on the uh, GI Bill. Uh, but the military was always very important to him, and he saw stuff in Germany that made him. A real fan. He was as liberal as you get, but he was a real fan of the militaries. And in Vietnam, we had he and I had a running, continuous argument about Vietnam. Ruth and I, on the weekends, when uh, the mornings when I wasn't working, would go and march, and everywhere we could find a march against Vietnam. And Ken was a big supporter until deep into the war. And one afternoon, before we all went to work, Ken shut off my house with a bottle of uh, bourbon and said, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I've changed my mind entirely on Vietnam, so I just want to come over here and tell you that you were right and I was wrong, and let's celebrate. So we drank the bottle of whiskey and went to work. (laughs) There was just this incredible energy in both newsrooms, and it, it carried over into spending a lot of time together outside the newsroom, cross country skiing, playing poker, playing pool, hanging out at Bill's house, and before that in Rutland, hanging out um, at his house or, or with Kendall. Um, every time uh, you put the paper to bed, when we did the joint Sunday edition, editors would come up to Barry and 
reporters and editors would be working late into the night and it was kind of like you were on duty almost 24-7 and I think that was this culture that that built up around Kendall and Rutland that Bill carried on when he moved up here and it was it was a pretty amazing culture to be in. When I went over to the press bureau in 75 with Tom and with Mavis, Tom said to his wife Liz, one of the first mornings we were there in January, I'll see you in April. <laughs> and he wasn't kidding. We would go to work, I would go to work because I came from the Yarkas at seven and talk to Bill. And then we would write stories up until Bill would hold stuff to 1230. We'd be calling in stories from the state house and then we'd no sooner get done with that and we'd be on the phone with Kendall until 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock at night. And then we would be out either in the tavern downstairs here, the Brown Derby or down the Little Valley Club with legislators getting more stories. And that's the way it was. I mean, we, we, we were working 15, 16 hours a day uh, and loving it. Well paid though. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was extraordinarily competitive. Yeah. Extraordinarily competitive. And that was exacerbated by the fact that Bob Mitchell was also competitive and hated the Burlington Free Press. They yeah. both hated the Free Press. And there was an, an unending feud and, and wonderful atmosphere of being, about being the Free Press. And let me give you a story about uh, the, Bobby Kennedy died. He was shot in California at 11 o'clock at night. That would have been 1 o'clock in the morning here at that time. Paper had already gone to press. Bill and Kendall were sitting around the parking lot, I think, drinking beer. drinking beer. A bunch of the other reporters were down at my house drinking beer, waiting for the paper and stuff to come out. We saw a, a report on television about, about uh, uh, Kennedy being shot. Uh, Bonnie Graham and I, Bonnie worked in the, she was a typesetter. Bonnie Graham and I came back to the paper. Kendall had already stopped the presses, something you never did. Never did. He had stopped the presses. This guy was Excuse sitting. Me, let me interrupt because he did another thing. He went down and had one of his many fights with a composing room boss because he made him throw away all the papers that already run. Wood didn't want any of them on the street, so he, they had a huge shouting fight about whether to throw away the papers or not because uh, Charlie didn't want to throw them away and Kendall insisted he Kendall won. But oh, go ahead. When I got there, this guy was sitting in front of the television pulling stuff off, pulling stuff off the wire, uh, you know, that was coming in on the teletype and rewriting the, the top to the story. The original Herald had gone, to, had gone to press saying Kennedy led in California. And they remade over the paper. We got a picture in the paper that Kennedy was shot in California election rally. The front page of the free press had his opponent leading in California. The next morning, Kendall was ecstatic. I don't think, I, I think we were the only paper on the East Coast, East Coast that had the story. The yeah. only paper on the East Coast, the only morning paper that didn't have multiple editions. Well, the best story about beating the free press was how you, how you guys beat them on the Sunday paper. I mean, that's, that's the one that I thought was totally amazing. We got wind in, uh, sometime early summer that the free press was going to come out in the fall with a Sunday paper. And Kendall and I, I was up here at the time, and Kendall was still in Rutland, and we went to Mitchell and said, if you'll put out a Sunday newspaper, we'll do it with no more staff. We'll go from six days to seven days, including a Sunday paper, and won't hire anybody to do it. And he finally agreed. So we would have meetings at my house 
sitting out in the yard during the summer. And we did. We had a Sunday paper on the street about two weeks before the free press did. And it was it was no hold barred competition right right from the beginning. And these guys all suffered the price for it. Which leads us to another Kendall story, which was I've always blamed that foolish promise of ours about not hiring anybody for the fact that we had a union organizing <laughs> effort, which caused a huge rift in, in the paper and made a, l a lot of people angry at Kendall and uh, was a, probably the biggest internal problem that I know anything about in either, either paper during that, during that period. It was a, uh, a no-holds-barred, we're going to win on both sides. This is the person who can tell you about the other side because we were bitter opponents. Um, yeah, I mean, we were working really hard on the, both the daily paper and the Sunday paper, and I think I think we had maybe 12 days on continuously before we had a day off, and we were not making a lot of money, and the benefits weren't great, so a lot of people rebelled, and both papers had union drives, although with different uh, union organizations. It was hard because we loved the work. We loved what we were doing. It was a great place to work in many ways, but we wanted we wanted more salary and more benefits. And it was, yeah, it was a very difficult time. Most, yeah. most of the nastiness during the strike or during the, you know, was down in Rutland, not up here in Barrie. Uh, you know, down there, there were some tires slashed. There was fish put up on the, on the roof near the air vents. Uh, you know, stuff that really made life miserable for some of the people down there. Yeah, we didn't have a strike at the Argus, so um, we came close to doing it, but we didn't because we kind of knew that if we went out on strike, the editors had already figured out how to do a Sunday paper without extra staff, so we kind of figured they already know how to put out a paper without us. Um, and that's what they said they would do. They would just double up and triple up on their workloads and the managers would get the paper out. And I was really concerned about making a decision that would cost other employees their jobs. And um, personally, I was reluctant to take that step, but in Rutland, they did go on strike and all of the reporters were replaced and all of the staff who went out were replaced. Kendall was a ferocious competitor in that as with everything else ferocious. He was out to win and he was going to run over anybody that got in his way, whether it was a governor or a union organizer. And Kendall and, and the Mitchells, the folks who, who owned the paper, eventually did win. He was a, he was a lawmaker from Rutland, uh, Francis um, Gallagher. Gallagher, who was in the legislature as well as being on the board of aldermen. And uh, he he uh, choked on a sandwich and died at the, at, at the state house. And I think it was Steve who wrote the story, or maybe my brother Tony, uh, uh, Ed, Ed Kendall, uh, after getting all this information, called him up at 10 o'clock at night and told him to find out what kind of sandwich it was. When we covered campaigns, right, boys? Oh, God. We were with the candidates from the time they got up, left their house in the morning until they retired at night, every day of the week. Yeah. And then you wrote your story and you dictated all during the day when you had a minute. 
uh, when you covered the legislature. Even you reported how every legislator voted on every key issue. You had to make a list of all, didn't you, Tom? You were responsible for covering every committee. In 1960s, news of the, of the State House was handled by a single bureau that the Free Press and the Rutland Herald shared. And so there was no competition. And the, in, in, I think it was 64 that reapportionment came along, and the Free Press informed Kendall that Vic Murky, their star reporter, was going to come over and cover out of the morning press bureau uh, reapportionment just for them. And Kendall said, that is not going to happen. And he went to Mitchell and convinced him to start the Herald's own bureau, the Vermont Press Bureau, which still exists today. And so there were two three-person bureaus in the State House, and they were very competitive. And uh, Kendall made sure that we went to every committee, we went to every major vote, we talked to people, and we got the news first. And, that's, and that raised the level. The other thing he did that Howard referred to was what we call the campaign trail. And he sent us out with every major state candidate. We'd be with them all day long, and, and then you'd have to file a story. It was a little bit of overkill. It, maybe it was a lot of overkill, but it made these guys be honest. I think it was 70, in the 74, 76 election, we had eight reporters on the campaign trail. Eight! And, you know, I mean, in a small state like Vermont, that was unheard of. I was traveling with Patrick Leahy when he was running for the Senate. And we were overnighting in Bennington, and I was sharing a room with a free press reporter, Steve Carlson, who was a f friend of mine, but yet he was the competition. Well, somewhere around, as we were turning into the motel, Leahy pulled me aside, and uh, he said, I've got poll results. I got results of a poll. And Leahy wanted me to have it because he figured that was a way to get the cloud. He wanted to be in the Herald. He wanted to make sure I was in the Herald. And I said, oh, well, how did I get him? He said, he said well, you're going to have to get out of that room. So anyway, I went into, I went into the room with the Carlson, and I, I pretended to be terribly sleepy that <laughs> night. And I got into bed, and, and, and Carlson had the black and white TV on. And I said, I said, T, you've got to turn that goddamn thing off. I said, I'm beat. You know, i got to be up early in the morning. So I lay there still, and I listen. All of a sudden, I... I start hearing him start to snore, so I go into the bathroom, and I, I was able to squeeze through the bathroom window and I, and I, and in my skivvies. And uh, so I, I sneak through the motel courtyard, and I knock on Leahy's door, and uh, he hands me the poll results, and I go over to the payphone in my skivvies, call the Herald, and we had it all over page one the next morning. Carlson was so astonished and pissed off. Absolutely. I mean, but that's we, that was expected of us. When Jim Douglas was governor, 2002-2010, I noticed in the paper he was rarely available to comment at night. You know, he had his press conferences and things like that. That wasn't the case when Kendall was managing editor in the 60s and 70s. Every one of us in this room called a governor or a senator at home after 10 o'clock at night, and we got access. We had access because of the Herald, because of Kendall. Alan, you, I mean, you had a blow up with Snelling. Yeah, I did. I, I, uh, something came up, I forget what it was, something in Rutland and involved in Rutland city politics and the governor's office was supposedly going to launch an investigation. And as is the case, I think even now, the governor's phone number is listed in the phone book. And so I called the, called the home number for Richard Snelling. My name's Alan Gilbert and at that time, 
Snelling's uh, chief administrative person was Bill Gilbert. And I think that Snelling, when I gave my name, thought I was Bill Gilbert. And so he was, it was, it was at night, and he was, Snelling was happy to talk with me uh, until he realized from my questions I wasn't Bill Gilbert, but I was somebody else. And when he found out I worked for the Rutland Herald, he really chewed me out for calling him and pestering him that late at night. As soon as Kendall found out about this, he immediately called up Snelling and chewed Snelling out for chewing me out. And he said, when my reporters call you up, no matter when it is, you will be accessible. They will call you. You will talk to them. And I sat there in total awe as I saw Kendall's eyes just bugging out of their sockets. He was so intent on dressing down this governor who had dressed down me. But it was vintage Kendall, no doubt about it. In the, in the last few weeks, it seems, there's been an awful lot of analysis done in this state about how Vermont changed. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, Vermont changes from a conservative Republican state to a, a Democratic state, a, a much more liberal state, and the environmental laws come through. And, you know, that's the great moderation of Vermont. And there's all this talk about Phil Hoff coming in and the out-of-staters moving in and the hippies coming in, you know, and all these moderating factors. Kendall Weil was as big a factor in that as any and maybe the biggest factor because he gave in the Rutland Herald, he gave these voices of change, he gave them a place to be heard. And he we, and we tore into that goddamn Republican Party. How we hit Roland Seward, do you remember that? Remember and it was Roland for the Seward, good. Roland Seward's good. famous quote, which we put on the front, which Kendall ran on the front page. What are we saving the environment for? The animals? <laughs> Yeah, Kendall may have had some. Uh, uh, he he may have had some authorship in that one, but yeah. anyway, well, that was the it other, was just the other aspect deserved. of Kendall was uh, he would sharpen up news stories after they came in, sometimes beyond the point of uh, of factuality. Uh, and he would write editorials that would spoof people too. My favorite was called the Snellings, which which was a spoof on Dick Snelling, but at the time there was a professor at Castleton named Warren Cook. And a guy down in, in Harvard named Barry Fell, and it was their contention that some of these stone chambers around Vermont were Celtic. Now they were root cellars, but they were they were they, they were they were. That was my story. The long and the short of it is is Kendall would just lampoon these people, and he did it by. By, by, by bringing the governor and his family, even though the governor had lived here for 20 years, he wrote about this, these people coming to Vermont and, and, and building these stone chambers called Snellings. And it was just hysterical. It was, my, it was one of my favorite editorials. The Herald was his family. When, when he retired back in 92 or something, yeah, he retired. We threw him a party in Montpelier, and we gave him an engraved cup that said, Kendall Wilde, father to a generation of journalists. And he never married, he never had children, but he had this family of uh, wacky journalists that, uh, that meant everything to him, and, and he meant a lot to us. And that was his life. I mean, he'd get up in the morning at his little apartment on Mansfield Street, and truck down and uh, start work before anybody else. He'd disappear for a while, he'd come back. And, um, you know, he was in that newsroom until 10 o'clock at night, and then he'd go out and watch the pages be locked together uh, out in the composing room. 
make sure everything, all the headlines were right, he'd read the proofs, and then out into the parking lot with the reporters to drink beer and wait for the paper to be printed. I can't imagine still no, a job that would have been so much fun as that 20 years I did that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I could have had a better yeah. we were, job. We were blessed. Yeah. To, to work with Kendall and to work uh, in journalism at a time when people read newspapers and, and looked to newspapers for their for their news, uh, the 22nd, 32nd soundbite uh, didn't exist back then. That's right. We didn't do it for them. We did it for ourselves. <laughs> it was just fun. After Bill went uh, to Barry, I I moved into his his slot as the assistant managing editor and. Kendall and I would stay out in the in the parking lot next to the next to the Herald building and I learned more about how things worked how to try to move people through the news it was like putting a puzzle together trying to figure how he was going to handle an issue the next day and we would be up sometimes till 5, 6 a.m. as long as the beer held out. It was just this extraordinary education and it was night after night because Kendall had nowhere to go and I was learning. A toast to Kendall Wild. This is Rumble Strip, Vermont. <laughs>